Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Net Roots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, and GDPR, Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Hello. The broadcast is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but Brad and Desi have time off. You have me, Angie Coiro, sitting in. I'm the host of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. Twelve! Count them, twelve! The feds have twelve audio recordings of former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. The FBI found those when they seized materials from Cohen's hotel room, his home, and his office, and the FBI has turned those over to federal prosecutors. Haven't heard yet whether Trump has tweeted about that. He probably has. On to Carter Page. Not much has changed in the battle lines around the release of 400-plus pages of FISA application materials documenting, in between redactions, why former Trump aide Carter Page was under surveillance amid his possible connections to Russia. Among the many hot takes pulled out by CNN, quote, the FBI believes Page has been the subject of targeted recruitment by the Russian government and believes that Page has been collaborating and conspiring with the Russian government. There is probable cause that such activities involve or are about to involve violations of the criminal statutes of the United States. Trump has been playing his usual games on Twitter and in other public venues, lying about this warrant and that seizure and the other release of information, whether it's about Cohen or Carter Page or general White House shenanigans. Now, to his credit, Marco Rubio, there's a phrase I never thought I would utter, to his credit, Marco Rubio, broke with Trump, who claims that this is all about Hillary Clinton and the Steele dossier. Rubio points out there were a lot of reasons beside the dossier to look into Page. You know, Naomi Klein's phrase shock doctrine keeps coming into my head as I sort through these news stories to share with you today. And to be fair, I'm kind of putting my own twist on the definition of shock doctrine. But the sentiment is the same. People who are in power, people with money, who have a megaphone and a laser focus on increasing their power can throw so much stuff at the wall so fast, you can't focus. In fact, you eventually become numb. Iran, FBI, Carter Page, Russia, China, memo, spin, counterspin, kids torn away from their parents, environmental laws disemboweled. Wow. And one of the venues that we have had to keep it all sorted is getting strangled. Big cutbacks at the New York Daily News. About 50% of the staff is out the door. Same old, same old. It's the digital age. Nobody has figured out how to keep valid reporting engines alive. It was just last week when the front page of the Daily flashed around the world, Donnie holding hands with shirtless Putin while shooting Uncle Sam in the head. The headline on that front page? Open treason. Speaking of the Daily, check out its story on Manhattan Representative Gerald Nadler, who pulled out not a single punch on reuniting seized immigrant children with their parents. Quote, if I was a judge, I would have them in front of me in court, and I would say, if all the kids weren't reunified by Thursday, you're going to jail for civil contempt. I call it what it really is, government-sponsored child abuse. When the Trump administration came up with this monstrous policy, he went on, it did not even consider how it would eventually reunite these families. This administration was so intent in causing pain that it never even occurred to them to have a plan. Now, if you're a fan of plain speaking, here's the rest of it. Nadler complained that even immigrants who apply for asylum are charged, quote, it doesn't matter. They treat it as a crime. What they're really doing is deliberately torturing children, 
in order to be a deterrent. Thank you to the New York Daily News for that coverage. And long may you wave. Here's a must read for you from the Washington Post. It ran last Saturday. And if like me, you've been trying to understand how self-declared Christians can not only tolerate, but approve of taking children from their mothers and fathers, perhaps permanently. Look for the story in the Washington Post, Judgment Days. It's another of those meet the Trumpsters travel pieces, and those show up everywhere, granted. But this one, even after all this exposure we've had to the ridiculous and the appalling, this will drop your jaw. The story sketches the attendees at a Southern Baptist Sunday service in Luverne, Alabama. Now, here is 82-year-old Jewel Killos, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, Jewel Killos' version of Christianity and Trump. Quote, she had not yet heard anything to dissuade her from believing that Trump was being used by God to save America. Oh, I feel like the Lord heard our prayers and gave us a second chance before the end times, she had said a few days before, when she was working at the food pantry of the Alabama Crenshaw Baptist Association. Check out this description, by the way, of the pantry. It was a low brick house where the Baptists kept stacks of pamphlets about abstaining from premarital sex, alcohol, smoking, and other behaviors. They felt corrupted Christian character, which was not something Jewel worried about with Trump. She said, I think they're trying to frame him, referring to unflattering stories about the president. By they, she meant liberals and others she believed were not only trying to undermine Trump's agenda, but God's agenda for America, which she believed was engaged in a great spiritual contest between good and evil, God and Satan, the saved and the unsaved. Whew. Now, at this point, the story by Stephanie McCrumman goes into Jewel's versions of heaven and hell. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to mock that. What, whatever gets you through your life, right? But then we meet Terry. Quote, there was Terry Drew, who sat in the seventh pew on the left side, who knew and agreed with Trump's position and knew that supporting him involved a blatant moral compromise. I hate it, he said. My wife and I talk about it all the time. We rationalize the immoral things away. He said it. We rationalize the immoral things away. We don't like it, he went on, but we look at the alternative and we think it could be worse than this. The only way to understand how a Christian like him could support a man who boasted about grabbing women's crotches, Terry said, was to understand how he felt about the person Trump was still constantly bringing up in his speeches and who loomed large in Terry's thoughts. Hillary Clinton, whom Terry saw as sinister and evil and I'd say of Satan, she hates me, Terry said, sitting in Crumb's office one day. She has contempt for people like me and Clay and people who love God and believe in the Second Amendment. I think if she had her way, it would be a dangerous country for the likes of me. And he saw there was the issue of Trump's character and there was the issue of Trump's own extinction. He's going to stick it to me, Terry said. Okay, then we meet Sheila. And Sheila chimes in on the extinction theme, too. She agrees that because of Islamic puppet Barack Obama, quote, we're moving toward the annihilation of Christians. These are not caricatures. These are people. Now, you know, this hour, you know, we're going into the latest on Carter Page and Iran and, and more nefariousness from the White House. And those are the headlines of today. There will be more headlines tomorrow and more shocks and more shocks delivered straight into our overworked brains. But if you think about it, this Meet the people piece is so key to all of that. When we ask ourselves after each of these stories, how can good people let this happen? Here's your answer. A passel of answers. Good people who go to church and they work in food pantries, they look out for their neighbors. Wait a minute. No, they look out for their American neighbors, as the good book says. Let's go back to Sheila and to her friend Linda for this excerpt. Quote, Obama woke a sleeping nation, said Linda. He woke a sleeping Christian nation, Sheila corrected. Linda nodded. It wasn't just Muslims that posed a threat, she said, but all kinds of immigrants coming into our country. Unpapered people, Sheila said, adding that she had seen them in the county emergency rooms and they got treated before her. And then the Americans are not served, she said. Love thy neighbor, she said, meant love thy American neighbor. Welcome the stranger, she said, meant the legal immigrant stranger. Here's Sheila, her own words. 
The Bible says, if you do this to the least of these, you do it to me, quoting Jesus. But the least of these are Americans, not the ones crossing the border. Sheila Butler teaches a Sunday school class at church. I believe God put him there, she said of the president. He put a sinner in there. She also fears the annihilation of Christians. Wow. Now, see, she compares this to the moral threat that character flaws of Trump might have. And her other moral threat that she quotes is the racial divide, which she believed was getting worse. Man, this one, this one. The evidence was all the black people protesting about the police and all the talk about the legacy of slavery, which Sheila never believed was as bad as people said it was. Slaves were valued, she said. They got housing. They got fed. They got medical care. She was suspicious of what she saw as the constant agitation of blacks against whites. The taking down of Confederate memorials and the raising of others, such as the new memorial to the victims of lynching just up the highway in Montgomery. She feels that a memorial to the victims of lynching is an undue agitation of blacks against whites. Sheila says, I think they're promoting violence. How do you think a young black man would feel looking at that, Linda asked. Wouldn't you feel a sickness in your stomach? Okay, they're looking out for the black people. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Sheila. They're looking out for the black people's feelings. I think it would only make you have more violent feelings, feelings of revenge, said Sheila. It reminded her of a time when she was a girl in Montgomery when the now famous civil rights march from Selma was heading into town and her parents, fearing violence, had sent her to the country to stay with relatives. It's almost like we're going to live that Rosa Parks time again, she said, referring to the civil rights activist. It was just a scary time having lived through it. Yeah, civil rights era was sure a hard on white people, huh? Now, it is fair to note, by the way, the Southern Baptist Convention last month voted approval of this statement. We declare that any form of nativism, mistreatment, or exploitation is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But apparently that word hasn't filtered down to Laverne, Alabama. Read this. I know you're probably up to here with pieces explaining Trump voters, but please make room for this one. It's in the Washington Post. So what does one make of the occupier of the White House snarling at Iran on Twitter? In case you missed it, his tweet, because that's where international relations should be conducted, right? On Twitter, his tweet said, To Iranian President Rouhani, never, ever, this is all caps, by the way, never, ever threaten the United States again, or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words. Wait a minute. He's calling someone else demented? For your demented words of violence and death, be cautious. You know, sometimes I think Trump was put on earth to help us all appreciate the relative sanity and deep intellect of George W. Bush. Anyway, his latest treat folly traces back to his decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Now, we're two weeks away from refreshed sanctions on Iran. Sanctions exporters, the sanctions on exporters of Iranian oil. Now, those sanctions are stepped back from more draconian ones that were first threatened earlier this month. There's just another cleanup duty for Trump's minders on that one. Anyway, so so here's the chronology. Sanctions were threatened, then they were lessened. And now that those milder ones are poised to come down on Iran's head, President Rouhani pointed out that war between the two would be, quote, the mother of all wars. With equal restraint and statementship, Trump yelled at him on Twitter. It's all pretty funny until the bombs start flying. Now, a war hawk John Bolton has chimed in, quote, I spoke to the president over the last several days, and President Trump told me that if Iran does anything at all to the negative, they will pay a price few countries have ever paid. While we're on the Washington Post, by the way, take note of their very nice deconstruction of the latest Trump pad one. First, we're going to scurry to the middle of the story to note what a good job Trump is doing or... That's the take from Republicans in the latest post-ABC poll. In November, just over half of Republicans, 53 percent, approved of Trump's performance, whatever you call that. Now it's up to 75 percent, three out of four. So here's how the Post has covered the latest walkback of a walkback. Six days ago, President Trump held a news conference to walk back comments he made suggesting he did not believe 
that Russian President Vladimir Putin oversaw a plan to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. Let me be totally clear in saying that, and I've said this many times, I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place, Trump said in that statement. Trump then said he realized after seeing the backlash to his news conference, one statement needed clarifying, and that is when he offered his now infamous double negative defense. In a key sentence in my remarks, I said the word would instead of wouldn't. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. Then in a Monday tweet, he walked back his earlier attempt at a cleanup. Quote, so now we find out it was indeed the unverified and fake dirty dossier that was paid for by crooked Hillary and the DNC that was knowingly and falsely submitted to FISA and which was responsible for starting the totally conflicted and discredited Mueller witch hunt. His latest tweet. Back to witch hunt again. <laughs> Picking uh, another strand of shock spaghetti off the wall here. The move to gut the Endangered Species Act is getting some coverage amongst all the other shows of shock. Maybe the most thorough is by Christopher Ketchum at National Geographic. Ketchum details the protections of the act, its consistent traditional opponents, and how the former is set to die at the hands of the latter. And maybe the most stinging quote in there is this, as Ketchum talks to John Dingell, former congressman and author of the Envi Endangered Species Act. I asked him if he could get the ESA passed today. I don't think I could pass the Lord's Prayer in that nuthouse, he told me, referring to Congress. The ESA was written so that scientific principles would be used to protect species. Science would make the decisions. Science would decide the case. Today we have a bunch of anti-science ignoramuses and vicious lying people in Congress. And we're going to pay a hellacious price. Remember Joe Hill? He said, don't mourn, organize. Quick takes before we move on from The Guardian. A U.S. judge said he would rule on Monday whether to delay the criminal trial of Donald Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and he would make public the identity of five witnesses granted immunity to testify. As of this moment, we're awaiting that ruling. U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis III also said the Office of Special Counsel Robert Mueller must provide a list of about 30 witnesses to lawyers for Manafort who had sought a delay in his criminal trial, scheduled to start this week, on bank and tax fraud charges. Sarah Sanders had to wipe up another Twitter mess after the toddler-in-chief declared Russian interference was a big hoax. Obviously, the president is talking about the collusion with his campaign. He's been very clear there wasn't any. I think he said that about a thousand times. Whatever, Sarah. And uh, global warming remains a hoax. The city of Kumagaya in Japan recorded its highest temperature ever, 106 degrees in a heat wave that has killed 40 people. Ten more are dead in South Korea from the same weather system. Do you want something out of the good news file and the kind of the unexpected news file? Republican Christine Todd Whitman has an opinion piece in the L.A. Times throwing down the challenge to her fellow GOPers, quote, Trump is unfit for office. She says his performance in Helsinki was disgraceful. His turn toward Russia is indefensible. And get this, quote, we must put aside the GOP label as hard as that may be and demonstrate the leadership our country needs by calling on the president to step down. Yowza. Okay, I don't expect any of that to happen. You probably don't either. But good on her. You know, credit where due. More from the world of entertainment at the end of this hour. A little tidbit. It's got nothing to do with politics at all, but it's, it's just a really, really cool, feel-good thing. So I'm saving that for the end of the hour, the cherry on the top, coming up on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Just a quick thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi Doyen and I stay on your public airwaves. You're the only thing that keeps us on those public airwaves. We don't rely on uh, corporate support or political support. We rely on you, and your support is needed now more than ever. At bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. I'll give you power. 
It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero, Brad and Desi. I hope are in a meditative pose somewhere, just breathing and breathing and breathing. Hey, we all need it sometimes. We are in a new age of protest. Lots of Americans over the past year taking on the spirit of the Joe Hill quote that I mentioned earlier this hour, do not mourn, organize. And they are. Marches for science. Marches for reproductive justice. Marches against insanity in Washington. A really impressive show of strength has been underway outside the White House for over a week now. And as usual, the media is barely mentioning this. But yeah, former Hillary Clinton advisor Adam Parkomenko has taken to Occupy Lafayette Square after Trump shamed us and hid from us in Helsinki, this group has been making noise metaphorically and literally with a mariachi band and opera singers and a drum corps and, Adam is promising, a very loud translator who will make the protests heard in Russian. Now, Trump was not there for most of this, but when he did show up to the White House, there was that whole circus all shouting at once, lock him up, lock him up. Now, there is an America we can be proud of. But to be frank, what are the extents and limits of what you can accomplish with protest? Now, on my own show this summer, In Deep with Angie Currow, we've been pulling our best shows out of the archive to give them a new airing. One of those is right on point. I talked to attorney Sheila Thomas of Golden Gate University School of Law and Dr. Claiborne Carson, founder and director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. Now, this interview was over a year old. It is still, wow, it's still incredibly relevant. Here's part of our conversation. One of the things I've heard from a number of quarters is that people are getting out in the streets or they're getting on social media and essentially they're venting or it's organized venting. But there doesn't seem, to the people who are questioning this, there doesn't seem to be a concrete goal. Are we talking about getting Donald Trump out and having a President Pence? Are we talking about having, you know, the White House shut down? What, what are we talking about here? And, and I want to ask you both about how critical it is to efficient and worthwhile protest to have a specific goal, or does it have its own value to get out there and let discontent be known, period? Well, I, I think that you're always going to have a di division between what I would call instrumental protest, or the idea is to achieve a specific goal, and expressive protest, which is to express your discontent with whatever is happening. For most of us, there's always a mixture of those two things. You know, after the invasion of Cambodia, or after, you know, some other egregious act, my first response would be expressive. You know, I, I just want to let people know I disagreed with that. And oftentimes that is the, the thing that brings the most people together, is that if you share that kind of expressive desire, then you're going to join the protest. Now, hopefully in every social movement, that gets translated eventually into something specific about, you know, yes, we can agree this would be an appropriate response mm -hmm. on the part of whoever we're ticked off about. And I think that within the civil rights struggle of the 1960s, you had different institutions. You had the young people who I identified with in Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We were very good at expressive. The NAACP might have been much better at instrumental, you know, because they had the ability to translate Freedom Now into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have known where to start writing a law. So in the best case situation, you have these groups working together. I've always depended on, on that, particularly when I was younger. I was arrested a few times, and, and I remember, you know, for example, passing out anti-war leaflets at the Los Angeles train station. They arrested me, charged me with vagrancy of all things. Well... Fortunately, there was an ACLU around. And take it to court <laughs> several years later when it doesn't really affect me anymore um, because I've already been to jail. Finally getting a California Supreme Court decision saying that that was illegal and that you can't use the pretext of vagrancy in a train station in order to stop free speech, even though it was private property. Mm -hmm. That's the way um, I would hope that 
for example, Black Lives Matter, that some of that is just the initial response. You see a video of an unarmed black person being killed by a policeman, the anger, frustration that it continues comes out, you go and you express that. And that's great, because if they hadn't done that, these killings would just keep going on with no one paying any mind to it. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't like Michael Brown was the first black person to be have this happen. It had been happening for 50 years earlier than that, you know, because that's what started the riot in Los Angeles. I would argue it's been happening since slavery. To me, yeah, it's, it's, it's always it's, been it's happening. Ju- right. It's, it, it's, it's the only thing that's different years. is that now you have some young people reminding us who are older, you've taken your eyes off the prize. Mm-hmm. You know? why, why are these things still happening? And I think that that was all positive. Now, how that gets translated into public policy, you know, we're still searching for that. What's interesting because um, my sense of most movements throughout history has been it's usually started by people who didn't know they were starting movements. And I think that when you were talking about the the movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matters movement, my understanding is it started with videos of of seeing what was happening, which, mm-hmm. as you said, were happening had been happening for I'd say centuries. Uh, but we didn't have video to show it because people would deny it was happening. But it seems to me that at this point, things have shifted. There is a goal in mind here. And we've started to see it in terms of what's happening around the Affordable Care Act. People are going crazy about that now, as well as the effort around uh, Jeff Sessions. If you can't be a federal judge, how can you be the attorney general? That would be the question. <laughs> So I I think that the reason for these protests is to put the government on notice. We're not going to allow this to happen. And the people have much more power than they think they have. So many people don't are now just beginning to understand how the government works. I lived in D.C. I went to law school in D.C. I understand how the government works. I understand that the various cabinet positions are important. Many people in our country have no understanding of that. They're now starting to see that after the fact. But all of those things matter. And if it, the, the, even the, the Supreme Court can be influenced. I mean, the, the decisions on affirmative action, if people were not organized around that, I don't believe the court would have done what it did. If people had not been organized around uh, Affordable Care Act, I can't believe that the ju- Chief Justice John Roberts would have voted the way that he did. Mm-hmm. But people underestimate their power. So this time, people understand there's, as people are calling it, the resistance. I don't really use that word. I really think of it as being a, a strategic, organized way of speaking out and making it clear, this is not going to happen on our watch. Most people want to know, what can I do? They want to know, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing is, we have to call our Congress people and let them know what we want. And that means across the country, we have to do that. That's how our government works. But oftentimes, we have not taken advantage of that. The truth is, is conservatives have been really good at it. Mm-hmm. We have not. Well, let's talk about, again, the limits with some of these. I was unable to trace this story to a reliable source, but a number of people were saying yesterday that Paul Ryan was no longer taking, you know, he turned off his facts. The phone lines were on constant busy. He was turning away petitions. And as a response, some people were publishing his home phone and saying, you know, if you won't talk to us, either your constituency or the rest of us, we are going to violate your privacy and publish that phone number. What do you guys think of that? I think think that there's always a line. We all want a civil society. We want to be treated with respect. But that works both ways. You know, I, I think that um, right now we're, we're in a situation where you have a black president who's coming to the end of his term who was treated with disrespect from the moment he came into office, and particularly by Donald Trump, who questioned the legitimacy of his election. Do you treat Donald Trump's election as legitimate? I can see an argument if Martin Luther King was here, he would probably say civility is is got to be part of it. Mm-hmm. I could also see the argument that you're not adequately dealing with the seriousness of the situation. I mean, we, we live in a nation 
that was born with a revolution. So we should not be surprised when people engage in acts of disruption, civil disobedience, when we look back at our own history and say that we wouldn't be here without a revolution. And we've had a civil war. Now, I'm not at all arguing that we should go back to the Civil War. I'm ready. Have, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not quite ready to say we're ready for a re revolution. But I think that we, we need to make an assessment of what needs to be done in the present moment. You know, I, those who have decided to stay away from the inauguration or someone like my friend John Lewis, who said that he's an illegitimate president, I couldn't agree more. He didn't get the majority of the votes. That in itself undermines the legitimacy of it. He is president because of an undemocratic aspect of our electoral system. And to give him the same respect that you would have for a person who did win the majority of the votes and did so without help from a foreign government and did so without a campaign that lowered the level of political discourse to a point that I've never seen it in my lifetime. I hope that we get that message across that the way you became president was unacceptable. And you will pay a political price for that. And it won't be forgotten. Well, the other thing I would add to that is that um, the thing that doesn't often get talked about, which is undemocratic, is voter suppression. And the fact that the votes in crucial states were suppressed. And there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were laws, there were legislation that was passed, and it was meant to suppress the vote of particular groups of people who typically vote Democratic. North Carolina was probably the most egregious example of that. But there were many other places that did the. I mean, one of the things that I don't didn't include in my background was is that I've done voting rights cases. I actually was involved in a case where we sued then Governor Bill Clinton in Arkansas um, because of illegal practices that wouldn't allow black people to be elected, and he was a the star witness in our trial. So, with that hat on, to me that's another aspect to this, which is undemocratic but we haven't been talking about it. Mm -hmm. So that's another aspect of, of people coming together. One of the things that I wanted to mention was that uh, Reverend William Barber, in, um, and I'm sure if you saw the Democratic National Convention, you saw him. Um, he's behind he, Moral Mondays. Right, he's behind Moral Mondays. But one of the things that he says, which I, which I really agree with, is that even if you don't agree on everything, there's some basic things that everybody agrees on. They want like their basic needs met. They want to be treated humanely. Those are things that people often can come together on. You know, if we could get to that, I think that that would be really helpful. There will be things that we wouldn't necessarily agree on, but if we could agree on some of those basic things, I think that it, it would go a long way to dealing with some of the conflicts that you had discussed earlier about the different groups, mm -hmm. because I've read about some of those things as well. Uh, but I also feel like those are the wounds of our country that we just don't deal with. You know, we, we, we still have not dealt with and reconciled our history. Right. The exclusion of many groups of people who are still dealing with the effects of those, that exclusion. I, I do want to touch on the role of civility that Clay brought up, because you and I were talking, Sheila, before the show. We mm -hmm. both agree that times are not normal. Mm -hmm. There are things that apply in normal times that do not apply now because of the level of danger that we're up against and how perverse everything has turned. Civility, I think, is one of those things that is normally expected. I want to follow up with you, Sheila, on, on whether you think civility is called for amongst the protests now. I don't know what civility means. I mean, it seems to me that civility is in the eye of the beholder. Because one of the things that I feel, uh, what I've noticed is, is that there's a double standard. Because is Donald Trump being civil? And I don't think that that's normal. Mm -hmm. But on some level, there's an effort in our society for some people to normalize that behavior. Yes. And so the question is, is what does civility mean? But one of the things that really irritates me about Martin Luther King's the whole thing around Martin Luther King's weekend is that there are only certain parts of his speeches that are discussed. I mean, he spoke about some of the very things that Black Lives Matter, the movement for black lives, 
people out in the streets in Oakland. Some of those very same things people are talking about now. He was talking about too, but those things have just somehow disappeared They've from our cleansed. public discourse. <laughs> They've been cleansed. So, right. I mean, right, exactly. And, and, and he was being civil then when he was talking about those things, but now it's almost if, as if we talk about these issues in a very graphic and specific way, that's not being civil. Mm -hmm. Now, anything that has to do with violence is problematic. That's not civil to me. But I feel like to me that civility has a double standard based on who's engaging in the conduct. Well, one, one thing that I find is that there's a selective memory, obviously, with respect to Martin Luther King, and, and he's seen through the lens of the I have a dream speech all of the time. And just think, uh, you know, we, we had an Occupy movement in this country uh, a few years back. What if one of the leaders of the Occupy movement had said, instead of occupying uh, the space in front of Oakland City Hall, let's go to Washington and occupy the National Mall. And not just do it overnight, but do it until Congress acts on the issues that we care about, like poverty. That's what Martin Luther King was doing at the end of his life. He was leading a movement to go and occupy the National Mall and stay there until Congress dealt with the issue of poverty. So I think we need to be very clear when we kind of have this, and it gets to the question of civility. You know, you put Martin Luther King in one category over here. There's these crazies who, who go around disrupting things. He was willing to disrupt in what I think is a civil way. He was not willing to use violence to achieve his ends, but he was certainly willing to disrupt the normal order of things. I happened to be giving a, a, a speech uh, over in uh, Hayward, and coming back from the speech, I was thinking about taking the Dunbarton or the San Mateo Bridge. Fortunately, I took the Dunbarton Bridge because my students, uh, more than 60 of them, were sitting down on the San Mateo Bridge and held up traffic for <laughs> uh, and and I remember in in that in that speech i was I was kind of defending student disruption and I, I realized the irony that I would not have been able to get back home because my students were out there stopping the bridge, which is probably not the tactic I would have recommended to them. You know free speech is something you do pay a price for it. You know, the, the, the safety costs, the police costs, the inconvenience sometimes when you, when you go and there's a large demonstration and you can't get to your work um, or I can't get to my class uh, when the president of Stanford can't get to his office because students are occupying it. You know, all of those things are that tension of where, where are the limits? And I don't think they can ever be precisely defined. I think a lot of it depends on the issue, the time, the alternatives available to the people. Circumstances. Martin Luther King describes riots as the voice of the unheard. And, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Sheila Thomas of Golden Gate University and Clay Carson of the Martin Luther King Institute. Up next, what your dollars supported on Amazon Prime Day? I'm Angie Corver. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is no longer a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself... Thank you. Some 
people say a man is made out of mud. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Corey sitting in as Des and Brad take the day off. Did you partake in Amazon Prime Day? That was a bit of discussion at our house where one of us <clears throat> did and one of us didn't. I actually I buy things from Amazon. I do. But with that and with any venture in America that simultaneously supports and exploits transient workers, I think we need to at least face up to where our dollars are going. Jessica Bruder has rightfully won a slew of awards for her book, Nomadland. And that book unmasks who the people are who fill your Amazon orders, who shovel the beets at harvest time, who take your money and clean your toilets at state parks. You would never know they are transient workers. Here's part of our conversation on Indeep, where I asked her how she uncovered this subculture. As a journalist, I do a heck of a lot of reading. And in recent years, I've been reading a lot about labor. Back in 2001, there was a wild story that came out of this scrappy little newspaper called the Allentown Morning Call that reported that temperatures in an Amazon warehouse had hit, I believe it was 110 degrees. And rather than install air conditioning or opening the dock at the loading bay to bring some cool air in, they had ambulances parked out front ready to pick up people as they dropped. And that kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that blew a lot of months. A couple of years later, I was reading a magazine story. It really got me peaked on warehouse labor and just that kind of economy that we're moving into, just these huge distribution centers and the work that goes on inside. And there was this story talking about it. And I think it was only two paragraphs where a woman briefly spoke with a reporter and said, yeah, I'm an RVer and I can't afford to retire. And Amazon has a whole program for that. And I said, what? <laughs> so basically, you know, I grew up in the Northeast, so not an RV heavy culture. And whenever I saw one going by, I would think to myself, there go the last of the great pensioners. They're going to see Old Faithful. They're going <laughs> to see Niagara Falls. Like, good for them. That's fantastic. And it still is happening to some degree, but blending in with this other group is this newly dispossessed group of folks who never really imagined doing that life or might have imagined doing it in the old school way, back when a recreational vehicle always meant recreation, Yeah. Uh, rather than permanent home traveling from job to job. So I got really curious about the subculture. I'm a big subculture nerd. And when I scraped the surface with some basic Googles, I started realizing there are thousands of employers hiring from this population. You know, national forests and the campgrounds to do the maintenance, which is harder than it sounds. That's three times a day toilet cleaning, shoveling fire pits, dealing with rowdy people. You're on site 24 hours a day, but you can't really invoice for that much. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some exploitation happening there for sure. Guarding the gates of oil fields in Texas, working at every tourist trap from Dollywood to wall drug. But it's amazing because in the mainstream workplace, there is so much ageism now. The woman who became the protagonist of the book had encountered it herself. She had a lot of really good construction skills. She'd been a general contractor, had worked as a Home Depot project manager. But as she aged, found that she could only get jobs working the register and never enough hours to support herself. Mm -hmm. So I think it was very surreal for her to go from a market where she's just clawing for every low-wage job she can get, not even getting enough hours, and those prospects are waning as she ages, to step it through this looking glass into this weird shadow economy where they want RVers and most of the RVers are at or nearing traditional retirement age and they want warm bodies now. There really is a, a forming of families. They call it a vanily. That's a word that came out of the van dwelling and they do, let, they do allow certain RVers in on that term, but they, they, yeah, they've been calling it the vanily. There are class distinctions too though. There's one group where there's an allocation of specific trailers around the fire pit, but you have to have a certain kind of trailer to be in there because you were in a different kind of accommodation. You were off to the side. Yeah. And then there's the division. And they called you an SOB for some other brand. <laughs> yeah. Thing. And then there's the whoever camps in tents has to be near the latrines so they yeah. can't. It's just weird to see that this classism popping it, up in it's, there. Yeah, it's crazy. One woman was telling me how she was having a perfectly lovely, literally, fireside chat with a bunch of other nomadic people. They might not have been full-time nomadic, but they were in really fancy new RVs. I think they, these may have been the last of the great pensioners. And they were having a great conversation. But when they asked her, where's your rig? What do you live in? And she told them it was a van. They literally got up and walked away from their own campfire. It, it's 
the perpetual heartache of subculture reporting is when one group finally comes out of the margins and then marginalizes someone else. Yeah. Yeah, and it happens over and over. Why is this a largely white phenomenon? It's largely white for a whole bunch of reasons. So, for example, uh, when I finished reporting this book, their tumpocalypse had yet to take hold. Uh, the creepy white supremacists, they were around, but they're all feeling empowered to crawl out of the woodwork. Yeah. They were still kind of in their hidey holes for the most part. But we were still in an era where there was horrible persecution of Latinos, particularly in border areas, and also where you had just about every week it was like an unarmed African-American in a car getting shot. And I started noticing it. Like, if you look at the photographs of Amazon's workers in Camper Force, lily white. I was going all to these places, people are white. I was saying, huh, this is funny because there's some sort of like internal diversity going on. I met trans people, there's a guy who, you know, his ancestry is Macedonian and he's Muslim and parks his car to face Mecca using a special iPhone app for call to prayer. So you have some diversity, mm -hmm. but it was pretty white. So part of me was thinking, well, look, you're vulnerable enough when you're a van dweller, you're always waiting for the knock by the police. You're vulnerable on the, enough on the road as a person of color. Mm -hmm. So just seeing that Venn diagram, I can't imagine being in that untenable spot in the middle. And there are some people who are there, just not that many. Also, if we look at the outdoor and camping industries, these have always been marketed really, really heavily towards a white demographic. RVing culture has been pretty white for a long time. That was what I came to just by observation and talking around, mm -hmm. but it is pretty darn white. Talking to Jessica Bruder about her book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. What about the different situations for women and men? Because a woman traveling alone is more vulnerable. Yeah, but by the same token, there are so many older single women doing it. That kind of blew my mind because, mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps it shouldn't have. Women have lower lifetime earnings than men because of both the gender wage gap and the fact that women typically do the bulk of unpaid labor like caregiving that takes them out of the workforce. That means they end up with less social security. And when I'm out there, the people I'm talking to are mostly from a generation where people could still have a one-income family, and yes. that would be enough to support it. And typically the breadwinner was the guy, and that was the culture. And women live longer. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't have been shocked, but uh, Linda's not at all anomalous in being uh, a single woman on the road. She actually kind of ends up with this tribe of other single women, but yeah, it's happening. How many of them put their experience, either verbally or, or you got the sense, that they put their experience mentally in the larger frame of what was happening to society? Some people. Uh, I wouldn't say most. I think a lot of people are really focused on the day-to-day. -day. Yeah. Another question people tend to ask me is, why aren't people out there, you know, burning things down or unionizing even at Amazon? I'm just like, this is a kind of difficult life. You know, even though it does have some freedoms and some joys, it's pretty hard. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are really focused on the day-to-day -day rather than putting it in a giant, you know, the arc of history. I kind of feel it, in, particularly in this era, mm -hmm. one of the great strengths of our species that has made it so darn adaptable and resilient is our ability to, to normalize our circumstances, right? But given the current political climate, I also worry that our ability to normalize things, that very trait that's made us so successful, could also rapidly become our undoing. Yeah. And I kind of noticed the same thing on the road, in that I always thought of myself as a tourist. I was in the van because I didn't want to have to be in my tent right next to the latrines because nobody I wanted to talk to was camped there. I wanted to really be able to be close with people and be on scene 24 hours a day. But even after just being in that role, you know, a glorified tourist, a journalist dilettante, whatever you want to call it. Uh, when I went home after two months, it felt so weird to be in a bedroom, and I didn't anticipate it. Mm. I mean, just waking up, the ceiling was too high, the light was too bright, and it, it freaked me out. Mm. Um, so I think a lot of people just get so enmeshed in their worlds that it becomes the world, which enables them to put one foot in front of the other, but also can kind of cut us off from the larger sweep of history. We can also see that the places that they work, they're, they're equipped to deal with m what might be the temptation for unions. Amazon, in their training and in their facilities, they're ready to acknowledge that the unions might in fact be organizing, and that showed up in your book. Yeah, I mean, Amazon now is required to have posters in their warehouses. I believe this was an NLRB ruling saying that people can unionize. I didn't see one when I was there, but the warehouse is many, many football fields in size, so who knows where it was living. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I was there, a couple folks who I, gosh, I've been in touch with them for maybe three years now, uh, long-term sources who are out on the road. 
and they told me that there were union organizers in the parking lot and that during their meetings at what they call stand-up, mm -hmm. which happens, I believe it's twice a shift. Um, I remember the first stand-up where you're kind of doing your stretches and they're doing announcements and they basically were telling people, you know, don't approach a union. It's almost like don't approach this feral animal. <laughs> don't approach the union. If they approach you, back away. Uh, but basically saying, if you provide your information, they will track you. I mean, it was bizarre to hear that Amazon had been kind of making this Orwellian argument, basically saying, you know, if you give them your information, they will track you, they will follow you, you will stay in that database forever. Um, and we take great care of you, so why would you want to do that anyway? Mm -hmm. And frankly, for the population I was writing about, which is so transient anyway, unionizing just, you know, you're there and you're gone. So it doesn't make sense, but it seemed like it was definitely discouraged, even for folks who were living in traditional stick and brick houses in the area and commuting to work and might be there for quite a long time. In our break, you had a phrase that I really wanted to get out there, weaponized. Oh gosh, I wish I had this phrase in the book, but it came to my mind afterwards. It is weaponized positive psychology. It, it was almost 1984-ish, some of the science, for example, oh, that were up yeah. around Amazon. Oh, yeah. There was one that said problems are treasures, and another one that said variation is the enemy. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I have pictures of them that I probably shouldn't have. Wow. And there were signs in the bathroom that showed you what color your urine should be? Yes. What was that about? Well, apparently it was about hydration. It did feel a little invasive. You were, you were basically, it was a little invasive. Well, at least there wasn't somebody there having me pee in a cup. I just had to do that before I got the job at Amazon, and that's its own story. Um, but, yeah, essentially it was a Pantone-looking chart with different color swatches, and you were encouraged to look in the bowl and look at the chart and determine whether you were adequately hydrated. The worst hydration level, it was this scary shade of puce, and I was thinking, oh my God, if anybody is urinating that color, they should probably get them out of here now. Call yeah. an ambulance. They don't want you to call an ambulance, though. They have in-house medical. It's called AmCare, and if they can take care of you on the floor, they actually have flyers. They, they don't want people calling out to med. They want to handle it all through their system. There does seem to be, in some cases, steps that go beyond the bare minimum that you have to provide humanity. So it sounds like it wasn't all like, you know, corporations are bad and they're exploiting these people. No, I mean, I think the bottom line is I, when people meet me, they expect me to be more militant about Amazon. Mm -hmm. And my attitude is my problem is with monopoly capitalism. Because the idea is, you know, when institutions are allowed to get so big that they rival our democratic institutions, you know, Amazon Cloud Space now hosts everything from NASA to the CIA. They're huge. And if you want to sell anything, you have to do it through them. And they'll, and there are instances of them actually knocking off products and using the sales data to kind of do what other people do better. So it is kind of the Borg, but our government is allowing that to happen. Anti-monopoly legislation is completely toothless. And I think that's the real problem. Mm -hmm. I mean... Yes, it's opportunistic to find all those loopholes and exploit them, but I'm not shocked by it. Right. That's what you do. Yeah. That's yeah. what people do in this. It's, it's a winner-take-all economy. Mm -hmm. I, I do think some of the things that are about caring for people are also about covering one's butt when it comes to corporate stuff. So having Amcare there in the warehouse, a lot better than having your people have to go out to the hospital right away. Perhaps you would have to report more things to OSHA. I'm not sure if you didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, there's some of that going on, too. There was one woman who I remember hit her head really badly on something that probably should have been covered up. And, you know, it's not like she got paid time off or anything. But when somebody from HR came to say hello to her in her trailer, she was so grateful that it made me depressed as hell. I mean, basically, oh, they didn't fire me. And they came to check in. And I said, honey, they're not paying you either. Yeah. They want to make sure you're not going to sue them. Mm -hmm. So I think particularly for a stressed demographic, when there's ageism in the mainstream labor market, they really do kind of have these people over a barrel. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some cases in the book where complaints were filed mm -hmm. and inspectors did come in. None of the outcomes that I saw were particularly satisfying in really taking care of the workers. Did you see anything where you felt like government inspectors were working to keep the workers safe? Not particularly. I think OSHA is very underfunded. And in other cases, I was uh, actually shocked by what I considered to be pretty negligent. So uh, in the process of reporting the book, I heard many times from workers in these campgrounds that the work they did took longer than the hours they were allowed to file to get paid for. 
And because in so many cases, if you're doing that job, you're on site 24-7. And if somebody wants you to sell them firewood at 3 in the morning, they can just come and bang on your rig, and you are on the job. Uh, there were cases, first of all, anecdotally, tons of people told me that this was the case and that they'd experienced it directly. However, again, there's so much ageism in the mainstream workplace. So many of these people were so grateful to have a job. They knew that complaining is a great way to get fired, particularly when you're an at-will employee and you can be terminated without cause on the spot. Maybe you've traveled across the country for this job. So I did reach out to the Forest Service, the National Forest Service, and I filed a Freedom of Information Act request just for one region because they kind of stymied me when I tried to do it nationally. They said, we have a billion different offices. And I said, OK, I just want a sample. So I did get back some letters that they had received complaining of things like what I've just told you about. And so I said, OK, well, when you get these, what do you do? And basically, the Forest Service contracts with private concessionaires. And the concessionaires do the hiring for campground maintenance and collect the fees and whatnot. So this is a, one of these much-touted public-private partnerships. And they said, oh, well, we forward the complaints back to the concessionaires. And I said, uh, is that, you know, I felt like I was having a kind of game show moment where I wanted to say, is that your final answer? <laughs> and I kind of went back and I said, I must explain to you how this sounds to me, because it sounds to me somewhat negligent, and it sounds like, well, you're just giving it back to the same people who aren't doing anything to begin with, and it's something that you've become aware of. So is that really a responsible way? This is public land. This is taxpayer. And it's funny. I almost felt bad for the press guy on the phone. He said, look, I've done the research. I don't know what else to tell you. This is what we do. This wow. is the practice. This is protocol. So that's what they do. Wow. Let's talk about Adventureland. You have such lovely things as an 86-year-old woman working. Yeah, so Adventureland is a theme park in Altoona, Iowa. It's one of the oldest programs to hire work campers. They've been doing it since the 80s, which is amazing. And while it seems like there's more demand for these jobs now, I believe their former, the guy who did that actually now runs a magazine called Work Camper News, which is very pro-employer, mm -hmm. to the point where one of their review sections for employers is called Praise Your Employer. The idea that the workers are going to come in and say yay, <laughs> which always kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, but so Adventureland has this program. They have an on-site RV park that people have to pay for. But I think if you stay long enough, you get some of it knocked off. Wages are low. I think they just went up a little bit because Walmart raised their wages and they had to compete or something. But I went there. And again, people in their 70s and 80s, people running the rides, a very strange mix of high school students and elders. What I didn't realize until later when I went home and read the news was that in 2016, a retired pastor and postal carrier in his 60s was running something called the Raging River Ride, which is one of these log flumes with a belt. And the belt started up too early and knocked him over and he hit his head on the concrete and he didn't make it. I mean, these are not, these are physical jobs. Mm -hmm. And that was the first case of a death I'd heard of. And again, I was surprised, but I felt like I shouldn't have been. Jessica Bruder. I was talking to her about her book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. You can hear that whole conversation at indeepradio.com slash podcasts. And that's a wrap on the broadcast. Oh, wait, no, it's not. I promised you something from the really cool file. Here it is. The Guardian UK reports that a demo tape featuring 16-year-old David Bowie with his first band, The Conrads, The Conrads with a K, was found in an old bread basket, and one of the old band members was clearing his house out, and there it was. It's a 55-year-old demo tape, apparently the first recording of David Bowie, who was then still known as David Jones. Punchline, Decca turned down the offering of that demo session. And that is a wrap on the broadcast, really, this time. Brad and Desi return for the next go-round. I will be back in a couple days. I'm Angie Carroll of In Deep. Happy birthday, Brad, and good luck, world. I can't stand this in